everyone needs a vacation every once in a while. And with all of her impressive sleuthing, Nancy Drew is no exception. When she accepts an invitation from her gal pal George to take a ride on a cruise to Mexico, she is more interested in catching some rays than hunting down clues. But when Nancy runs into her male detective counterparts, that's Frank and Joe Hardy, of course, on the ship, she can only fight her workaholic tendencies so much. So begins Double Crossing, the first book in the Nancy Drew Hardy Boys Super Mystery Crossover series, which was published in 1988. While Frank and Joe are working undercover to chase down the thieves responsible for stealing from cruise passengers, Nancy stumbles into an even bigger mystery. This one involves national secrets, the CIA, a group of snotty diplomats' children, and some sketchy 80s computer disc technology that I'm not sure I totally understand. The mysteries take center stage, but sparks also fly between Nancy and Frank. And as you'll hear shortly, that chemistry helped lay the groundwork for my guest's future as a romance author. We dive into the Frank-Nancy vibes, but also the power dynamics and icky language around race that we see in Double Crossing. My guest takes me into the nuanced rules around cheating when writing romance and helps us situate Nancy in the larger timeline of feminism in the U.S., we talk about why a cruise ship is such a great setting, why it's so fun to see Nancy in a more contemporary time period, and why Nancy has been such an appealing protagonist for so many generations of readers. And of course, we break down each and every step of Nancy, Frank, and Joe's journey to solve both mysteries and impress the CIA, including some truly terrifying moments. Let's say hello to this week's guest, Nisha Sharma. Nisha is the critically acclaimed author of YA and adult contemporary romances, including My So-Called Bollywood Life, Radha and Jay's Recipe for Romance, The Singh Family Trilogy, and If the Shakespeare Was an Anti-Series. The first installment in that series was Dating Dr. Dill, and I know you've seen it everywhere. Nisha's books have appeared in the New York Times, The Washington Post, Cosmopolitan, Entertainment Weekly, and more. She lives in Pennsylvania with her Alaskan husband, her cat Lizzie Bennett, and her dog Nancy Drew. Let the record show that I was not aware of Nancy Drew when Nisha and I planned to chat about the other Nancy Drew. You can follow her online at nisha-sharma.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Nisha Writes. Go to www.ssrpodcast.com listen for more content about each and every episode of the show, including this one. There's plenty of SSR content to explore on social media too, at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. Your engagement with SSR doesn't have to stop there. Please share your thoughts about the show with me via Instagram story or with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also become a podcast patron at www.patreon.com slash SSRPodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. As a Patreon member, you'll gain access to amazing exclusive rewards, not to mention a truly incredible community of readers, all while supporting this independent pod. Starting in November, patrons will have access to exclusive rapid-fire Q&A content from our amazing guests, in addition to the book club, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, and other perks that are already up for grabs. You won't want to miss out. If you're tuning in now and you are already supporting the work I do on Patreon, I hope you know how much I appreciate you. 
Let's talk about audiobooks. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. And use code SSR podcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Happy listening! Get ready to ride the high seas with Nancy and the Hardy Boys. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Nisha. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled that you are here, and we are talking today about not one, but two classic franchises in the world of Kidlit and what happens when you bring them together, everyone. We're talking about Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and this crossover series of theirs that I guess started in the late 80s and I was completely unaware of until you suggested it. Nisha, I would love to start by hearing a little bit more about your personal history with all things Nancy, all things Hardy Boys, and what made you suggest this fascinating crossover title. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, I love talking about the series. So the Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys franchises are like over, I think they're almost 100 years old, if not more at this point. They are IP work, which basically means that publishers will hire different authors to write under the pen name that is attached to the series. And so I grew up reading Nancy Drew mysteries. I read a little bit of the Hardy Boy mysteries, but I was mostly drawn to like the Nancy Drew mysteries. And basically what had happened is over like the course of three different tries, the publisher tried to kind of converge the two series. So I think there was one in like the 60s, there was one in the 80s. But these books, the Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys Super Mysteries, they were published, I think, in the 90s. I'm just double checking what that was. This one, I think, was 1988. Oh, no, this was... 1988. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So this is, so they started in the late eighties and went into the early nineties and the super mysteries were, I think, the most popular out of all of their trials because there was a very clear romance that existed between Nancy Drew and Frank Hardy. And let me tell you like baby Nisha was like hooked the minute I saw that chemistry on the page. I don't know what it was, but like the roots of my romance history begin in the pages of these books. And so I'd been exposed to romance through, you know, just grow like just in my 
in my life um, before that. I mean, Bollywood movies always have, at that time, Bollywood movies had a lot of romance in them. And when I started reading regularly, I, you know, would read The Babysitter's Club and I'd be really interested in Marianne and Logan. But then when Nancy Drew and Frank Hardy showed up in my life, it was game over. And because there's no resolution to their relationship, obviously not. I mean, they live in separate series and Nancy Drew has a boyfriend and Frank Hardy has a girlfriend. I used to write fan fiction where they would kind of like leave their lives and like officially like solve crimes together. And so that was like my elementary school like romance series that I would write. I'm so obsessed. I'm obsessed. Can we find this fan fiction anywhere? Is it available? I feel like it's like under my bed somewhere, like my my parents' house, in my parents' house. But um, yeah, I was I was obsessed. And so there's like two books, two books where you see Nancy Drew and Frank Hardy kiss. And we tried to read the first book called Secrets of the Nile. And that was like the genuine kiss. Like that was a moment when they were like, we pretended to be married and it just it didn't work out because we have our own lives, but we really want to be together. And so The Secrets of the Nile is like out of print. It's impossible to get a hold of. We tried, I think, yeah. but it just it's like $160 or something to get a hold of one copy. Yeah. But this is the other book and the kiss is very brief. It's very quick. And it happens because Frank is trying to save Nancy Drew from like getting caught, basically. And so that is why we picked Double Crossing, because this is like early Nisha Sharma, like <laughs> history. <laughs> I am so overwhelmed with glee. Like that's the only word I was hoping I was hoping that knowing that you were a romance author, that that had something to do with it. But I, of course, didn't want to ask the leading question. But yes, we have some very sweet little clues about what might be brewing between Nancy and Frank in this book. And I'm excited to talk more about them with you because I thought it was spicy and very sweet. So we'll talk about it. Um, listeners know that I do have a history with Nancy Drew. We have read several classic Nancy Drew titles for the podcast, which I will link in the show notes for this episode. And I was a big fan of hers when I was a kid. I really liked, I think it must have been the Super Mysteries, the more like modern spinoff, because I did read several of those. I remember the covers being like a little trendier, but I actually have never read a Hardy Boys book before this. I've offered it to a couple of different podcast guests and nobody's been that interested which is fine. So this is my first ever exposure to the boys. And just by way of the research that I've done about Nancy and the series for the podcast, I sort of understand a little bit about the history of the Hardy Boys and how the Hardy Boys came first and then Nancy followed. It's all very interesting. So again, listeners, go check that out if you're curious. But I feel like I have finally like crossed that box off my bingo card of like I've now read a little bit about the Hardy Boys and I'm glad that it was in the context of Nancy because this book is really mostly from Nancy's point of view. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what it was about Nancy that you enjoyed so much when you were a kid? I think like she was the first character that I had come across that had so much agency and it wasn't that she was struggling to be herself. She was herself. She was supported by her father, by like her nanny, by her best friends. And um, she was 
fully had fully come into her own already and was just living life that she wanted living the life that she wanted to live and so i thought that was a really powerful narrative and something so simple but like if you looked at all of the other books that were coming out at that time it was always the heroine was constantly just trying to prove their right to exist mm. and romance is very similar to that storyline like in romance the heroine or the the character the protagonists in general they have may wrestle with an, an internal struggle with identity but they don't have to prove that they have a right to exist and to have joy that that genre in genre romance that is like part of you know, the blueprint of the genre itself, that these characters are able to experience joy and love and happiness, and they don't need to like prove their worth for it. I love that assessment of Nancy, because I'll be honest with you, the earliest books in the series don't age that well. And so a lot of the conversations that we've had on the podcast about Nancy have leaned negative because we're talking about a lot of the extremely racist underpinnings of those early books, which, yep. you know, I, I think that, of course, has to inform the overall history of Nancy Drew and, and a lot of just mm -hmm. like the dated representations of women. And there's, there is some of that in this book, but I think that what's great about the books that came out in the 80s and 90s is that the team behind these new series took all of the things that were great about Nancy and her agency, as you said, Nisha, and the fact that she is different than so many of the other female characters that were coming out in Kidlet at the time and kind of pumps those up so that those are the things that are more noticeable and shrinks down the elements from the books that were published decades and decades ago that don't sit mm -hmm. quite as well with, with modern readers. Would you say that that's fair? I 100% agree. I mean, w when you read these, like even the super mysteries with them together, you have to read them with a particular lens to understand that we still hadn't even hit second wave feminism yet. So, you know, that like that second wave feminism, like isn't even in the pages of this particular book. And there are also some like very cringy references, I think, to like the Latinx community that is referenced in this book. There are cringy references to ableism. And, you know, because it's written in 1988, like that is that was something that like at the time sensitivity readers didn't exist. And, you know, the fight that we we have for representation was such a, a quieter voice. We didn't have the internet, we didn't have platforms that we have access to today to allow for those conversations. So, you know, I will say that if anyone is picking up the super mysteries, like it's just to be mindful of that. But if I go through the book, it's, you know, what I find really interesting is in 1988, they didn't do too bad of a job compared to some of the other books that were coming out in the YA space at the time. I would agree with that. And it was fun just to see Nancy exist in a different time and place because for the last couple of years, whenever I've revisited her, it's been in this very old school, traditional world. And I actually, I always do my like deep dive research into a book for the podcast after I've already read it. And so when I was reading Double Crossing, I didn't know what year it was meant to take place in. And when I found out that it was written in the late 80s, I was like, oh, it's actually like really fun to see Nancy like having access to different kinds of technology and wearing different clothes. And that's the cool thing about this kind of timeless character is that like we as a culture are so bought into Nancy and of course the Hardy Boys, I don't want to forget them too, that like 
we suspend disbelief and we're like, oh, it's fine that Nancy now lives Mm -hmm. in the 80s. We're good with that because it is fun to see her explore what it means to be a woman in different time periods. Yep, absolutely. I want to talk, like, let's just talk about Nancy and Frank first because we've given (laughs) listeners a little bit of a taste (laughs) of that. And before we get into the mystery, which is, of course, always our girl Nancy's priority, like she is... Once there's a mystery, she's going to jump into action. But there is a romance on the back burner. Now, as you mentioned, Nancy does have a boyfriend back home when she arrives on the cruise ship that will be the setting for this mystery. And Frank Hardy does have a girlfriend, Callie, uh, who I believe he's been dating for a long time. Nancy asks about her. When she gets onto the ship, there is a note from her boyfriend, Ned Nickerson. And I did want to read this quote, which just here's where Nancy is with her love life. What a guy. (laughs) Ned Nickerson had to be the greatest boyfriend a girl ever had or ever could have. Nancy promised herself that no matter how good looking the guys were on this cruise, she wasn't even going to think about romance, and especially not with Frank Hardy. She'd crossed paths with Frank and his brother before, and every time she did, Frank had the same powerful effect on her. Nothing had ever happened between them, though, and it wasn't going to this time either. She had a boyfriend, he had a girlfriend, and that was that. And I, I wanted, I just kind of want to hear from you as a romance author. I have had many other romance authors on the podcast and we've had conversations about like the cheating trope. And of course, like there, nobody's cheating really in this book because they're sort of flirting around it. But I would just love to hear your, your instincts, like as somebody who writes in this genre, writes in this space, like what are your thoughts on characters who both like actively and like clearly and obviously and out in the open like have significant others just being like yeah hey I like you let's just flirt so I have two thoughts the first is this is definitely not a romance it has a romance in it right so if this was a romance then I would say that this would be a totally different conversation and I would not be as like as passionate about Nancy Drew and Frank Hardy because you know the core of the story then changes from this mystery element to the relationship and the feelings that exist between the two characters so like I said, if it was a if this was a genre romance novel, if this fell into the romance uh, genre on like the bookshelves, then totally different conversation. The other thing is Ned and Callie, the respected partners of Nancy Drew and Frank Hardy, have always been foil characters. So in the series, Ned is sometimes with Nancy Drew, sometimes he's without Nancy Drew. He shows up at the opportune times that Nancy Drew needs someone to rescue her from like a burning building or a car falling off the edge of a cliff. It always happens. Those those moments that Nancy Drew is like, there needs to be some person that can like basically just pull her from the edge physically, not emotionally, because there's no real like emotional conversation that really ever happens like to a long extent when it comes to their relationships on the page. So like they are really just placeholders so that And honestly, at the time these books were written, readers could feel like their focus on the mystery was justified because they don't have to focus on settling down and having families and whatever, because they're already partnered up. So they fit that foil element really well in both of the series. That being said, I think it's like, it also goes to show that like, if 
Ned was meant for like a long-term romance relationship. If if I was conv- I would be convinced that they were soulmates if Ned was as attuned to Nancy Drew's hopes and dreams as Frank Hardy is. So the thing is like Ned is not in the same like sleuthing industry. Ned has like periodically and throughout the books in the whole Nancy Drew like oeuvre, like Ned has sometimes made like condescending remarks about her sleuthing. He's told her to tone it down. He's told her to to stop looking for a mystery. He's like made those comments in the past and not in every book and not every time he's on the page. Like some books, he's great. He's amazing. And other books, depending of course, again, on the writer, you know, there is a little bit more of a subtle dig at Nancy Drew's passion for solving crime. And they've broken up multiple times as well. Like they've had breaks and they've gotten back together. They've had breaks, gotten back together. So like all of that collectively together makes me think that Nancy Drew and Ned are not meant for each other. However, every time Frank Hardy gets on the page with Nancy Drew, she even says there's like a, there's a line in here and I wish I had tagged it where she says like, it's electric whenever Frank and I are in the room together, it's electric. And I don't know if I can control it. And like, you can see that when they talk to each other, it's like they're always reading each other. And when when she's in danger, and when she knows that like something is happening, she immediately is like, Frank has got this. I know he's got this. I can trust him. But you do not see that same trust with Ned ever. So interesting. Okay, so I'm understanding kind of the line of how we feel about any variety of cheating in a romance specific novel versus other novels. So like in this case, again, there, there's no like real cheating anyway, but it sounds to me as though because this isn't really like a, a romance with a capital R book, mm-hmm. those rules aren't necessarily in play as much as they might be if we were to pick up a romance. I am thinking primarily of a conversation we had about the book Anna and the French Kiss, which I will link in the show notes, Mm -hmm. where my guest was like very upset about the cheating because she said that's just something that romance authors do not support. But that is a romance book. This is not. So that's a really helpful distinction. And I, I mean, I'm really into the Frank and Nancy romance. They have such great chemistry and they have such great chemistry in dialogue that is like kind of stilted and not supernatural feeling like I can't imagine if a more contemporary author or perhaps the fan fiction author of young Nisha putting the same relationship (laughs) on paper like the fact that things feel so electric between them in this kind of like hard to relate to dialogue it's a little robotic like I can't imagine how sweet it would be if they if they actually felt like real people and I I do feel like there's mutual respect there to your point about the way that Ned speaks to Nancy about her sleuthing Frank and Joe his little brother really respect Nancy so much so that there's a moment early on where when Joe sees that Nancy's on the ship he's like oh no like we can't let you get involved and see like how great you are at being a detective because we have to protect our reputation so they really respect her and they know that she's good at what she does and they can talk about sleuthing and I just feel like there's some genuine respect which is which is nice to see with these characters because often Nancy is not respected and There are at times even weird vibes between Nancy and her dad because there's like an ownership thing that happens in the earlier books in the series. And and I feel like Frank kind of lets her 
do her thing. And that just reinforces that agency that you were talking about earlier on in our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, I think the best part about like Frank and uh, Frank Hardy and Nancy Drew's relationship is like, if they were to like, if they were to like pursue a romantic entanglement, because their individual like integrity and sense of honor is so strong and it's laid out through the way that they engage with other characters in the story while they're solving mysteries i think as readers we trust that they would do the right thing by their partner at the same time so you know i think that i feel safe in that sense because we've had so many books to get used to or to understand what their characters are like by the time we reach these super mysteries in the late 80s Yes. I also wonder if the writers behind these books that were published in the 80s and 90s, it seems like they sort of borrowed a couple of the, a couple of the sort of ways of being of the time period in which the original books came out. Like I remember, for example, hearing my grandparents who were dating in like the 40s and 50s talking about what dating meant in the 40s and the 50s. And at that time in history, like, although I think I sort of think that it was a more puritanical time and people were so careful with their love lives, like, I just remember hearing my grandmother talk about, oh, well, I had a date with this guy on Friday and then I had a date with another guy on Saturday and I was just kind of dating and that's all it was. It wasn't necessarily being in a committed relationship and even if I did have a boyfriend, I might still get asked out on a date by somebody else and I've, I've read a similar narrative in other books from that time period, so... I wonder if we're kind of maintaining a little bit of that sense of dating, even though these books are set in the 80s and 90s. That's sort of like a convenient thing to pull from the older version of Nancy. Yeah, I definitely think so. And also, I think it's important to remember that a lot of the authors that were hired to write Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys, like back in the day, I say back in the day, like that I was like alive at this time, authors that were usually contracted to write these books were a lot older yeah. than than what you see now as like young adult and romance authors. Like I remember when I started writing professionally, I was always the youngest person in the room. Like everyone was over the age of 40. Mm. And I was like the one 19 year old who was like part of Romance Writers of America. So like, I think that's like another thing to keep in mind that like maybe the author at the time who was actually Caroline Keene who wrote this particular super mystery, maybe they were like, I don't know, in their 40s and 50s. And they had experience dating in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, just a different sensibility about relationships and dating. Well, in any case, I think that Frank and Nancy are end game, And I hope that you uh, maybe can find some of that old fan fiction. And I just want, I want to live in a world where they are together. And <laughs> I want to hear more about that. So let's move on to the mystery because that's what Frank and Nancy would want us to do. Nancy's number one priority is always solving <laughs> yeah. mysteries and not love, as we know. So... When I found out that this book took place on a cruise ship, I was immediately thrilled. Um, when I was a kid, while I wasn't writing fan fiction about Nancy Drew, cruise ships were one of my favorite settings in which to place my own early short fiction. Uh, I loved writing cruise ship stories when I was probably nine or 10. My family went on a Disney cruise. It's to this day, one of my favorite oh vacations my of all time. <laughs> my husband is very anti-cruise, which makes me sad because I don't know that I'll ever experience that again. But after I went on that cruise, I was like, cruises, this is my new go-to setting. Before that, it was amusement parks. <laughs> and I used to write about like princesses and amusement parks. 
So I felt there, I felt like I was home. I was like, oh, I'm finally reading a book set on a cruise ship. And it was just fun. Like, it's a fun, different place. I have had writing teachers who have, who have said to me, like, if you get bored with your characters and you're not sure what you want to do with them next, just put them in a new place. And that feels like what they did with this book. Yes, they're kicking off this new spinoff series. But also, it's like, let's put these people in a place we haven't seen them before. Cruise ship, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think all of the books have like a different unique setting. And I think that's the only way like, the romance piece of it would work, to be honest, like if they were like, back in like Nancy Drew's hometown, or if they were, you know, where Frank Hardy and Frank and Joe Hardy were like at college, like, it just wouldn't have the same appeal. And so the cruise ship also, I think, what I enjoy about these Nancy Drew and Hardy Boy Super Mysteries is that the setting is also a, a device to increase the urgency of the mystery because they have such a short time period to like amplify the tension and then the dissolve the tension. So being on a cruise ship, stranded on a cruise ship where there's so many places to hide, so many things that can go wrong, gives the author the ability to really like play with with the setting in a in you know, a way that we wouldn't have if it was in a hometown where everyone knows like what's safe, what's not safe, where to go, what to do, how to get out. Mm -hmm. It also, of course, becomes like a locked room mystery immediately because we're on a floating ship. So that it all works. I was really excited about the cruise ship element. Nancy is on this cruise because her friend, George Fain, is acting as the social director for the cruise, which I loved as a little detail. And George is like, look, I know you're really stressed out about solving all these mysteries. Why don't you come on vacation on this cruise? You can stay with me. We're going to have a great time. We're going to Mexico. Let's do this. And Nancy is like, I'm I'm off. I'm out of the office. I'm just going to go have fun. And of course, we see Frank. Frank is there undercover. He is acting as this sort of ship's photographer um posing under a different name he's not frank hardy he's frank bresson and his younger brother joe is working as a bus boy on the ship and they are there because the captain has identified some some thieves and things are disappearing from the guests rooms so they've been recruited to come to the ship and try to figure out what's going on with the thefts nancy is like again i'm off like you guys try to handle this I'm going to go hang out with George. We're going to do scavenger hunts. We're going to wear costumes. There's going to be masquerade balls. I'm going to go to Mexico. It's going to be awesome. But that's not what happens because as much as the Hardy Boys are there for a legitimate crime, there is something bigger and more sinister at play, and it involves the CIA. (laughs) It's like so unreal. I was reading it. I was like, I was eight years old or however old I was when I read this book for the first time, and... I don't know why I was like immediately, yeah, of course it's a CIA, duh. <laughs> right. And yet as an eight-year-old, you were probably like, wow, nothing is more important than figuring out what's happening with the CIA. I am fully bought in. A hundred percent. I mean, it's like within, I think, 30 pages, Nancy Drew is standing on the deck and she's like hiding, I guess, like against the corner or on a different level, whatever it was. But she overhears a woman talking to a man. And in this conversation, the woman has these disks with information that she was able to secure with CIA data on it. And the man says, OK, meet me tomorrow at 6 p.m. on the princess deck. 
and we're gonna do an exchange and she's like okay bring the money yeah i mean it seemed pretty straightforward i actually i transcribed that conversation in my notes here the man says hello i see your shopping bag is from plumbers and the girl just says that's what it says and the man says then you are pipeline and the girl says yes and he says and tell me what precisely is on these discs and she says i've already told you <laughs> codes maps covert operation plans everything and the man says your father works for the cia that is how you got this information and she says yeah he works for the cia that's what i said look i don't want to play 20 questions take this it's the sample disc you wanted if you like what you see meet me tomorrow morning at six on the princess deck and don't forget to bring the money so i i have several questions about this i am not a detective i'll get just get that out of the way up front nor am i a cia operative uh nor do i have parents that work for the cia Here's just a, a mistake that I think maybe this girl pipeline has made. I don't think you're supposed to like give somebody the discs or the USB drive or whatever, and then be like, hey, take a look at this. Let me know if you want it and then come back to me. And then we can talk about a price. This feels like a pretty big misstep. <laughs> I mean, yes, 100%. Like you can tell the like back then when there wasn't like of easy accessible like compute like google was like not a thing like that there's a serious gap in research in the way that like the government works <laughs> yeah and, and even cruise ships because like if george is like a social director on a cruise ship she would not have space in her room she would most likely be like bunking in a slim bunk bed with another person who works for the ship and so the fact that she has like a big room yeah is hilarious to me i mean i've seen below deck that's not that's not what people have when they work on a ship they are in bunk beds they have no space i agree with you but again eight-year-old nisha who also didn't have access to google at yeah. the time i read it it's like, yeah, that totally makes sense to me. <laughs> so here we are believing the CIA discs uh, are important. And then my favorite scene happens right away. <laughs> okay, tell me, tell me about your favorite scene. So uh, they are dispersing and Nancy Drew is like gonna get caught. So she gets grabbed and like someone makes out with her and it is like an incredible confident amazing kiss and when she pulls away it's frank hardy who is there to like protect her cover <laughs> of course of course it is of course it is he is so on top of things and he, he has his camera because he always has his camera okay so we now have two mysteries in the works and we talked about this briefly before i started recording but i actually found this book to be pretty confusing from a mystery standpoint mm -hmm. and i wasn't sure if it was just because i was reading it at the same time as i was maybe reading something else for the podcast but i went back through it today in preparation for our conversation and i have to tell you that i'm still a little confused so we're going to do our best to talk about the plot, uh, to talk about some of the key points of, of the mystery and, and of the sleuthing. But I can't say that I felt that this mystery was uh, perhaps as clear as it might have been. Yeah, no, 100%. I think that's also like a writing device piece where if you don't have like a lot of emotional development, 
Uh, you rely heavily on like plot points to carry the book through. And let me tell you, Nancy Drew gets her butt kicked so much oh my gosh. in this book. She's chloroformed. She's locked in a room. She's like tied up and like hung from an anchor. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's a lot. It is shocking to me how many times Nancy Drew is locked in small spaces. Uh, she was locked in a few small spaces in the earlier books in the series. Her father, Carson Drew, was once locked in a basement. Like, this is a thing that happens regularly. And I, like you, I'm I'm thinking back on my seven, eight-year-old self, and I'm thinking, did I just think that this was normal? (laughs) Like, oh, there she is. I mean, probably. She's locked in a basement (laughs) again. Very strange. Okay, so Nancy discovers that this CIA situation is happening, and so vacation is canceled because when the mystery calls, Nancy answers. Something that always fascinates me about Nancy, and it's come up on other episodes, and of course it works for the purposes of these books, and so we can't can't interrogate it too much, but I do always like to bring it up. Nancy's credentials, and the fact that people just are like, yes, you are a famous detective. Like, the captain just takes her word for everything. And I think it Mm -hmm. is worth noting in this book specifically, because as you mentioned, Nisha, There is some strange language about people of color, about Latinx folks who work on the ship. And so I I think it becomes relevant, like Nancy's credentials and the extent to which people in power just sort of automatically trust her is relevant here because there are many cases in which it's Nancy's word against the word of somebody else who is like not a pretty white upper middle class girl who we are meant to believe is this famous detective and people just believe her before they believe those other people. And so the power dynamic uh, is always interesting to me with her. And I I don't know how, um, I don't know how that tends to work in other Hardy Boys books, but I would imagine something similar is often at play. Very similar. Yep, absolutely. And I think it's also like at the time you're seeing the writer process bias, Mm. like on the page. So I read it and I'm like, oh, okay, I know the race and ethnicity and the gender of the writer who is writing the story based on how they frame conversations between marginalized communities and Nancy Drew themselves. Yes, to all of that. There is immediately language from the Hardy boys, from the brothers, about how all of their suspects in the mystery of the things that are disappearing from guests' rooms, all of their suspects are crew members and also have names that I would imagine in the 80s and 90s were often naturally and immediately coded for Latinx men. And Nancy is always just like, oh, they're Spanish names, which I like the language. It's like, then she's like, oh, he had a Spanish accent. Like these little clues throughout, as you mentioned, I was like, oh, no, like, can we like immediately I felt icky about it. And the fact that almost everybody that worked on the ship had a name that was coded this way. It was, it was a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I, I think like for someone who is a marginalized writer myself and someone who worked in diversity, equity, and inclusion for over a decade at this point, like I, when I read that, like it's, yes, there's always an ick factor, always an ick factor, but um, it's like, social sciences part of me is also like okay well 
date, time period, author, lack of like research, lack of awareness, like all of that is definitely like written into the page, which is why I appreciate marginalized writers and the work that they do today in the books that they write so much more. You know, every single time I like revisit an older book that has this kind of like coded language in it. Yes. Uh, I agree with all of that. And the Hardy boys are off doing their thing and investigating all of these men mm-hmm. while Nancy is getting down to business with the CIA situation. And she finds out that this group of five young adults who have boarded the ship around the same time that she did, they're casually diplomats kids, which I just loved that they, that they're like, oh yes, like sometimes we're rude. Like we're diplomats children. You know how it is. And she gets bad vibes from them immediately because they mock Frank when they board the ship. They make fun of his camera um, and they're just quite frankly assholes to him. So Nancy is like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And she starts keeping a close eye on them. Interestingly, George is having some flirtation with David, who is the nicest seemingly of those five diplomats kids. And the only one coded as white European. That's true. Yes. And of course, that's who George is, ends up with. He, she's dancing with him and she's flirting with him. Um, and I, I was rooting for them as well. There were a couple of moments where I was like, oh, no, David, like, please, I hope that you're a good guy because I just want things to work out well for George. She's working hard. She's putting on these parties. She needs to have some fun. And she's always like roped into Nancy's shenanigans. So I always get really excited when she has her own love story. Yeah, I mean, everybody is really invested in in Nancy's sleuthing business. And so, um, yes, there's a point at which George is like tailing some people uh, on the ship and she ends up putting herself in danger to figure out what's happening with the CIA. So there's a big moment. There are so many things. So Joe gets thrown off the ship at one point. Mm-hmm. And Frank isn't allowed to be concerned because nobody is allowed to find out that they're brothers. So Frank has to try to play it cool. What else happens? Marcy, who is one of the five diplomats' kids, disappears. Mm-hmm. And the other four kids seem sort of unconcerned, like Nancy's frustrated with how little they seem to care. These strange things are happening. The, the thefts are continuing. Frank gets chloroformed at one point. Oh, no, he gets he gets drugged by the bartender. Right. Nancy gets chloroformed when she gets off the ship in Cozumel. Right. Um, she has a weird interaction with a young Mexican boy that I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. She was, like, following him. Nancy is also seemingly being, like, stalked by this creepy man that is always staring at her. Mm-hmm. My favorite moment was when Frank and Nancy snuck into the pool for an after-hour swim and that seemed like that was going to get sexy and then there was a body floating in the pool and again like we just have Nancy charging into the captain's office and saying look sir this man is dead and nobody asks Nancy or Frank wait you missed the biggest part of it wait which part there's so many things what was the pool scene oh the bathing suit when she was like I love my bathing suit I liked that part where she was really into her outfit 
totally but like before after they found the body after she found the body frank is like hey nancy are you in here like i'm excited to like dive in and have an after hour swim and she's like frank yes there's a body in the pool <laughs> and he like dives in like without waiting two seconds he's in the water gets yeah. her out wraps her in a towel and he's like sitting with his arm around her while they're like in the captain's office like and telling the captain what's happening <laughs> to, so he's like comforting her in her moment of distress and in her chic bathing suit <laughs> that she's really into she's feeling herself yeah. in this outfit but yeah they charge into the captain's office he's consoling her and the captain has no, like he has no questions for them about why they're there this is what i'm talking yeah. about um again i've seen below deck i know that this is not how a captain would operate a captain would be like what are you doing in my pool after hours everything i need to know about boats mm-hmm. i learned from below deck what are you doing in my office? <laughs> what are you doing here in the middle of the night? Like, Captain Lee would be so angry. Don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass the ship. Those are his rules. And everybody is just out of control. So that happens. Like, there's just so many weird things that go on, Misha. And I've sort of lost track of how they even all come <laughs> together. Oh, Gail, one of the diplomat's kids, locks Nancy in a closet in mm-hmm. the basement. But don't worry. Like, Joe just casually, like, saw it all happen. So he's able to unlock the closet very quickly. Nancy's not there for very long. But then the big moment at the end when the man who ultimately, like, is is the CIA, he's, he wants the secrets, who is posing as this man named Baron von Hoffman, I believe. But he's actually... Mm-hmm this like infamous Russian criminal who wants to steal America's secrets, he tosses Nancy and George into whatever you call the room where the anchor lives. Yep. And that was actually like a really scary scene. I wanted to just read what he says to them because it was quite frankly terrifying. Mm -hmm. He says, When we reach Miami, the ship will drop anchor. When the chain is unrolled, the force of it will knock you unconscious, so you will not be awake when you slip beneath the water with the diving anchor. I regret that I will not be able to watch, but I look forward to seeing it on the news. He's just going to let them die. That's his plan. And yes, the visual of Nancy as the anchor unrolls or like drops to the bottom of the ocean or whatever, the other girls have gotten loose. The visual of Nancy hanging off of the anchor chain will probably stick with me for for several years yeah no it was definitely a lot also marcy was finally found like marcy was there so marcy was with uh besmer coughs like in room he had he had like she had bribed her she had went to his room because he made her um and then he chloroformed her and she's she was in there for quite a bit of time there's like an allusion to like something bad happened to her he chloroformed her again she was basically there and then she was also one of the three that was tied up and of course like because i read these books for the romance not so much the mystery because that's i became a romance writer because of these books like as frank cut the and like there's even a line in this where Frank is basically like, uh, where she's like, um, Frank is going to find the confetti. He's going to follow us down here. I know he's going to find us. Like, she has such faith in Frank finding them. And then when he finally does, uh, like, she slid down into Frank's arms and he held her tightly. I'm like, that's right. Right there. Listeners, Nisha (laughs) was just clutching the book to her chest. 
Um, <laughs> I did like the confetti. I thought that was a great touch and a great, a great way to help them be discovered. I think my other favorite part of this book is the fact that Marcy is the pipeline girl. Like she's the one who's, who was leading the charge on spilling the CIA secrets. And the reason that she is doing this is because she's mad at her dad. Yep. <laughs> she is, she's upset because he works so much. He works so much and she is, she's sick of it and she wants to get revenge on him. So she's like, you know what? I am going to put the entire safety of our country in danger. I'm going to leak these secrets. I'll show you dad. I'm going to get these secrets to, to a mystery man on a ship. And then at the end of the book, when Nancy and the Hardy boys and George are all being complimented by the director of the CIA for their bravery and their brains, they basically say to Marcy, they're like, this was kind of like a silly thing for you to do. Like, don't let it happen again. <laughs> yeah, they were like, this is a little bit of an embarrassment. So we're just going to like, sh like brush this under the rug. Don't, Marcy, please don't do this again. <laughs> like, tisk tisk right, for espionage. Right, like if you get mad at your dad again, <laughs> like please find another way to to channel your feelings. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think like what is the most telling about it is like it was like a Russian spy because it's 1988. Like you're still like we're still, you know, the book was written in the Cold War, like at the tail end of the Cold War in the U.S. So it's always going to be a Russian guy. Always. <laughs> well, and there is a pretty clear um, through line of patriotism, I thought, in the book as well. Like there yep. are several times when Nancy's inner monologue is very much about like, I think she once explicitly says, like, I can't believe any girl would hate her country so much that she yeah. would sell our secrets to to a, to somebody that she doesn't know. Um, and I thought that that was really, you know, such a sign of the times and very telling of of what the kind of party line about patriotism yeah. was in the late 80s. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of chaos. Did we miss any key points? Oh, the Hardy Boys <laughs> did figure out who was stealing. It's the bartender, mm -hmm. a woman, which they were surprised about. I also did like that, like so much of their investigation at the beginning turned on the assumption that a woman would never steal. Yeah. All of their suspects were men. And then twist, it was actually a woman who was stealing things. But I think that kind of covers all the chaos. Am I missing any other notable scenes that you remember? It feels a little bit like a fever dream. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that like it's primarily like set up and then there's beats in between that kind of increase the tension about like just the urgency of solving the mystery as quickly as possible. And it kind of unravels relatively fast in the last two chapters. And that's when you really see how everything comes together. And there were just like light hints as to the story actually progressing in that central center chunk of the story with all those different action beats. But I mean, honestly, like eight year old Nisha still loved it. <laughs> and like part of like 37 year old Nisha still loved it. Too. <laughs> it was a fun read. It was a fun read. So in general, Nisha, I mean, it sounds like you loved it. Would you say that it held up to your memories of all things Nancy and Hardy Boys? 
So, I mean, I definitely think I have more cultural acuity. I have more awareness. Um, I am more knowledgeable about how like government agencies work and that, you know, you don't just get a slap on the wrist if you are committing like massive espionage treason situations. But the romance that is still, that is still holding up to this day. I still believe that they belong together. I want more. I might need to find more Nancy Frank stories somewhere, whether I continue with the series. Although, like you said, when we were looking at that other book, it was like a million dollars on thriftbooks.com. Yeah. So maybe there are some other less expensive installments that we can check out. But I'm so glad that you introduced me to this book, reminded me that this series is out there, that we got a taste of the romance, that we got to wade through this wild set of mysteries together. It was a lot of fun. And now I finally have had some real exposure to the Hardy Boys, which I think is important in my own (laughs) podcasting education. But other than Double Crossing, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, a lot of stuff. So uh, I just finished The Love Match by Priyanka Taslim, T-A-S-L-I-M, which is a young adult romance. It's very cute. For adult romance, I also read uh, You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akawaki Amezi, E-M-E-Z-I. And that was just phenomenal. It's very steamy. It's boyfriend's dad. So very steamy. (laughs) Highly recommend. And then I am currently reading a bunch of nonfiction books. So I finished The Anthropocene Reviewed finally by John Green. I want to read that. Obsessed, obsessed. It's so good. And then I am finally reading Burnout. Uh, Burnout is written by the Nagoski sisters. It's a book that basically talks about like how women burn out, how people burn out, and uh, like ways to build processes in your life to slow burnout or to make sure that you don't hit a burnout cycle. Hmm. I have not read that yet. It's been on my list. I'm, I think, a little concerned to read it because I feel like it might hit a little too close to home, but maybe that's exactly why I need to pick it up. It definitely hit close to home for me, but it was worth it for sure. Okay. Well, I will include links to all of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode. Listeners, go check them out at bookshop.org. Support your indie bookstores. Nisha, I also want to include links to your work and talk about it a little bit. I read Dating Dr. Dill earlier this year and I ate it up. I am a newer romance reader, I would say. I'm more of a dabbler and I I love a good romance when I find it. And so when I saw Dating Dr. Dill, I was like, must give it a try. Love a Shakespeare retelling. It was so deliciously spicy. I loved the characters. (laughs) I loved their relationship. It was so fresh and so fun and so well-written. And I know we have a lot of fans of yours in our community. And I also know that you have another Shakespeare retelling coming in the summer of 2023. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, so um, uh, Dating Dr. Dill is the first and actually a trilogy of Shakespeare-inspired romances. So you meet all the characters who have their love stories in Dating Dr. Dill. So Bobby and Bunty are the next couple that will find love in in, um, tastes like Shukar which comes out, I think, in June or July. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> but that information is usually, like, I post it right away on my Substack, and I post it on my 
website. So definitely check, follow me on social media or subscribe to my newsletter if, uh, through Substack if you're interested in um, those updates. Um, so that book is uh, inspired by Much Ado About Nothing, which is my favorite Shakespeare play of all time. So I'm very scared about it. And then I also have my third young adult romance that comes out actually earlier than that. The Karma Map comes out March 1st of 2023. Uh, it's available for pre-order now. Um, it is through uh, Skyscape Publishing, which is an imprint um, by Amazon. So I think you might be only able to pre-order it on Amazon right now. But the book is about a youth group temple tour through North India. And it's a grumpy girl, sunshine boy romance. And it's a redemption love story. Ooh, it sounds like you have some really great stuff stuff coming up I'm excited for you and also just so excited for you and and all of the success you've had with dating Dr. Dill specifically and your your Thank previous you. YA titles it's been so much fun to have you on the show and I I really appreciate your time we were saying before we started recording listeners that Nisha and I scheduled this I I think like maybe more than four months ago like we got it on the calendar and we have been waiting for it and it did not disappoint. I'm so glad that we made it happen and I'm just grateful that you made the time. Yeah, no, I'm, I was so excited for it. I'm, I remember like back then I was still working. So I had just recently retired from corporate and like uh, as of like a month oh. ago. And so I was still working. I was like wrapping up my corporate job. I had to finish the first draft of like Tastes Like Chucker. I had to finish copy edits on the Karma map. So it was just like bananas. And I told my editor, my publicist, I told everybody, I, I was like, I want to do all of these things, yeah. but it needs to just like take a beat. So I'm just so glad you stuck with me and you like gave me the moment because I am, I was just so happy to revisit like something that was so instrumental in my childhood. Well, I loved revisiting it with you and I'd love to have you back on the show. Maybe when your next book comes out, it'll be so fun. Yeah, that sounds great. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>